0: Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we're going to pick up today. Um, do me a favor. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, raise your hand. Someone's going to bring you a Bible. Or um, open up on your Bible app on your phone. I use the uh, King James our New King James Version. And so uh, lots of great versions out there. We live, happen to live in a place where people fight over versions of the Bible. But listen, you're not going to catch that fight here. Um, I use the New King James Version. like it. So if you want to follow word for word, that's what I'm in. Um, Hey, and then also just quick announcement before we begin our study today. Our um, youth group is in Rupert, Idaho. They went down on Friday. On Wednesday, we had the group from from our sending church, California, where John and these guys are from, originally Joshua Springs, um, where Lydia and I spent 15 years. Um, That youth group came up and met with our youth group here on Wednesday night. It was so cool. This whole place was full of young people. I put them all to work, all 30 of them. We cleaned out that back room. We cleaned out the conference room, took everything upstairs. And then uh, they had their their church service in here. And then they all just crashed out in here. So I came back about 9 o'clock, and the youth leaders and I, we set up tables in the the, um, foyer, and we played liar's dice all night. That's what the pastors did, you know. Um, I won every time. Not because I'm a good liar, but because I was more experienced than they were. And then, you know, at one point in, in the night, Riley, who's the youth pastor from, from Joshua Springs, he's like, who's watching the kids? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it was the cool. They, they, they turned the chairs around. They slept on the floors. They slept in the couches. And then they all left on uh, Thursday. And then our, our team met them up at Rupert yesterday. They, they had retreat. They went to the river. They're doing Bible studies. And then they're, they have a last service today. And then they'll be on their way home today. So keep our young people in prayer. They're having a great time. I think we had 10 uh, from here like 30, 35 from Yucca and 15 from Rupert. And so a group of about 60 kids. And so it's good for our young people to be around other Christians from other places. And so good deal for them. Um, And then again, if you're junior or senior high, or you have junior or senior high kids, we are meeting, the youth group is meeting on Wednesday nights right here. So encourage you guys to uh, encourage your kids to be a part of the youth group that's meeting um, with our new uh, youth pastors, Josh and Amber, who are on fire and excited, and so uh, First Corinthians chapter five is where we're going to begin today. How many of you guys know anything about First Corinthians or chapter five particularly? You're still here. You came today. <laughs> so I've been warning you guys that this particular chapter and this particular book. You know, if you if you if you look at the book of Romans or Galatians or some of the books in the Bible, Paul is dealing with a lot of doctrine and a lot of issues that um, are, are are you know theological issues of, of salvation and justification. and Co- Corinthians doesn't really have any of that. But Corinthians is is a corrective epistle, 30 chapters of it. So the church in Corinthians, and, and as we've been talking about, the city of Corinth was the Vegas of its day. It was the New Orleans of its day. It was a hub of shipping and trade. The Isle of the Isthmus was there in Corinth, which made it... a uh, uh, Everybody had to come through this port. It would be like the the Panama Canal that you know, where you could shave a bunch of time to get to where you're going through the Panama Canal. They had an isthmus there that they could dock the boats and get through and so it was a sailor town. All the sailors then would be on port for a couple of days. The um uh, drew a blank on the name one of the goddesses, Athena, the temple to Aphrodite's was there, and part of the practice of temple worship was a thousand temple priestesses, um, both male and female. Would come down out of the temple in the evenings into Corinth for um, temple worship. Basically, it was legalized prostitution, and um, it was just very rampant in in the city of Corinth. And again, you had all of this stuff there. And so Paul goes there, and he starts a church, and he spends some times with them, some, some time with them, and then he leaves Timothy there, and Timothy kind of is pastoring the church for a while, and and Paul is hearing about the things that are going on in this church, and so he writes letters back to them. And that's how we get our Bible, right? That's how the New Testament is formed As Paul went somewhere. He started a church for the most part. I mean, we have the gospels. We have revelation. We have some other anomalies, but for the most part, the letters and the epistles that Paul wrote, um, were churches that he planted and started. And then he, and then he left and he wrote back to them. And in this particular place, all kinds of stuff going on. So today we get to deal with, um, sexual sins. Let me, um, let me preface this and just, just encouraging, uh, um, I, I, you know, there, there is a particular onus in the scripture on sexual sins. Now I don't really place a, um, kind of a hierarchy of sin. I think sin is sin. And, you know, I've been in camps where people tried to do that and I could never figure it out. One sin is worse than the other or how God rates sin. I I don't know. Sin is sin, but for sure. In the Bible, because the Bible says, and he's going to qualify here in the next chapter, that um, sexual sin is a sin against your own body. Now, so again, I just, you know, like everywhere you go, right? There's people like to water down, or they, you could find places where the word is watered down, and um, you know that's not this church. And again, it's done in love, but but the reality is that the Word of God preaches the truth, and so any the, what, what it says is that any sex outside marriage is sin. So if you're shacked up with somebody that you're not married to, if you're having, you know, any kind of sex outside of marriage, it is sin, and God wants to deal with it. He wants you to get it right, you know. And you can't follow or be a Christ follower um, and live in this in this sin. You have to deal with it. So Paul's going to deal with it here in this chapter unequivocally. He's going to get into homosexuality and all of the the facets of basically fornication that God provides in His Word. I got to share with the young people. Um, Thursday morning, I came in, I did a Bible study for the youth group before they came. And, you know, one of the concepts that I always try to communicate to young people, and it's it's kind of difficult for young people to understand this, but in a way, I just try to keep unpacking it for them, keep unpacking it for them. But um, I want to share with you guys, you know, that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. You follow that? Tell your neighbor, sin is forbidden because it's bad. Okay. So what that means is that God didn't wake up one morning and, and come up with a list. These things are bad. These things are good. Don't do these things and you're a good person. You're a moral person and, and do these things and, you know, and you're righteous and these kind of things. But the things that God in the Word that He forbids and the things in God's Word that He says He doesn't want you to do and that, that are bad, they're, they're because they're, they're bad for you. They're harmful for you. For example, as a parent, you know, you're, you're, I have a four-year-old. I have four kids. One's getting ready to go to college and a four-year-old. But my four-year-old, she, you know, she would if I let her. We took, went out to dinner last night, went to fancy dinner. Patty and John took us out to a nice dinner in Salt Lake. And um, Like halfway through the dinner, we didn't order dinner for her. We said she'd just pick off our plates, right, because she's a bird eater still. And Lydia looks at me, she's like, are we going to try to make her eat? And I said, no, nah, just forget it. Let's just enjoy dinner. <laughs> I'll fight her to eat, you know. So we get home. And, and, of course, she's still hungry and she wants to eat. But what does she want to eat? She wants ice cream. She wants brownies. She wants... Everything in the kitchen that's just junk. But as a dad, right, those are good things. I'm not, I can let her have a, a, a cookie or something, but as a father, I'm not going to let her eat 12 cookies. I'm not going to let her eat. I can remember Caleb, my youngest son, it was like on Halloween or something, and he had a bunch of Halloween candy and he snuck into it and he just tore it up, man. And he comes in my room just sick as a dog. Dad, I'm never going to eat candy again. Oh, <laughs> you know. And so there, there's a limit, right? And we, we do things and we forbid things. But we forbid things to our kids because they're bad for them, because they're harmful. We don't let our kids play in the street. We don't let our kids do certain things. So the things in your life that God forbids, it's because they're bad for you. Okay, it's a pretty simple concept, right? Guys, follow that? You know, again, I I think for for young people especially, maybe some of you guys struggle with this. Maybe some of you guys um, have this same kind of idea that, that God arbitrarily just kind of comes up with rules, good and bad. And we kind of have to fit in those rules. But that's not the way it works at all. What does the Bible say about our relationship with God? That God is a good, good... Oh, actually the Bible doesn't say that. Who said that? Phil Wickham or somebody? But it should be Bible. God is a good, good Father. And as a good, good Father, He just wants what's best for His children. And so He forbids certain behaviors. And you know, we could be honest, right? If you look back at human history, what's, what's caused some of the biggest ills on society in human history? It's sex outside of marriage. From disease to... To the fatherless home, to on and on and on and on, you know, this, this one simple rule that God laid out. The other thing I tell young people, you know, is that, not the young people I was talking to this week, if I'm like upper high school kids, you know, I'll tell them, God doesn't forbid sex. God doesn't have anything against sex. And God just says, not now. He doesn't say never. He doesn't say you can't have sex. He created sex for you to enjoy it. He just said, not now. So just wait and then when you get married just make up for it or all the years that you missed that you had to you know that you had to wait because it's it's not bad and again when we when we mix, you know when we limit our kids' choices today which they don't understand what does that do for their future it broadens their future but if we allow them today to have all of these this broad scope of what they can do and where they can go then it narrows their future and so trying to again encourage them that we're we we we're doing it because we love them and these things are bad for them and these things will have negative consequences upon their lives, amen? So again, it's not because God doesn't want you to have any fun. It's not because God is a killjoy. You know what Jesus is concerned most about for you and me? Nobody? Let me tell you, if you read the Gospel of John particularly, from from chapter 13 to chapter 21 covers about a 48-hour, 72-hour period of Jesus' life, from 13 to 21. That's seven chapters out of 22 in the Gospel of John that cover uh, two and a half days of Jesus' life. Two and a half days of Him going to the cross. He's getting ready to face the the worst physical punishment that any human being in human history would ever face before or after. And know that what Jesus faced in the praetorium, with the cat-of-nine-tails being whipped 39 times, being beaten, having a bag, put it on his head while they punched him, and then put their hands underneath him and said, prophesy which one of these hands punched you. And the bag would have created the most drama because when you can't see a punch coming, your body can't naturally defend itself and flinch. So Jesus would have took all of that. They said that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. You know Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. It did a pretty good job. It was gory and it was was hard to watch. But the reality is that doesn't even do it justice because it was so much worse than even that. Because with the the blunt force trauma, with the crown of thorns that was on his head, it would have created black and blue and bruising and would have created swelling. He would have looked like Rocky Dennis with with his swollen all over the place in black and blue. And he knows in his mind he's going to face this. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Bible says that he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. How many of you guys have ever been so stressed out that blood vessels began to break on your forehead as you were sweating. None of us probably. Medical term for it, I'm not smart enough to remember. Hematoglossus, hematoglossus, where the blood vessels on your in your in your um, begin to burst. And and you know what Jesus talked about in that last 48 hours. Read it, John 13 to 21, five different times. What he was concerned about when he spoke to the disciples. Your joy. He wanted you to have joy. It's like, dude, like can we make like you've lived your whole life about everybody else and you're about to go through this? Let us minister to you. Let us let us let this be about you for a couple days. But over and over again in God's, John's gospel, he says, that your joy may be full, that your joy may be in me, and my joy may be in you. And that his, his real concern for the disciples, John fourteen, right? Famous scripture, he says in the beginning there, verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And where I go, I go to prepare a place for you. If I come, I will bring you again to Myself. And then we get the great question from Thomas. We don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through Me. But that whole, that whole discussion again was Jesus' concern for what was going to happen with them when He died upon a cross. So don't ever believe that God is a a killjoy or that God doesn't want you to have fun or enjoy life. He wants you to enjoy life. That's why He's told you to stop doing certain things. Amen? Okay. So not now. He didn't say no. He just said not now. So cut it out and wait. And then when it's right before God, can I say hump like rabbits in church? No? Okay. Okay. And make up for it later. He doesn't say no. He says not now. And, and, and when God honors it, it's time. So chapter 5, let's look at verse number 1. He says, um, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. See, right off the bat we catch this topic. So I know it was a long intro to verse 1. But it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And so even in the Gentile code of, of conduct, it was for, this kind of behavior was for, forbidden. And Paul says the Gentiles, those that don't even know God, those that don't even have this conscience of trying to walk or please God, they understand this is wrong. You know, In Greek culture and where, where Paul was in his day, it was very common. Again, the prostitution that would come from the temples was, was commonplace. It was accepted. It was legalized. It was, it was said for the Romans and the Greeks that they would have a concubine, a wife, and a mistress. And your wife was to bear children and, and, and take care of the house. And the concubine was for you know, other duties around the house as well and cleaning and helping. And, and the, um, the mistress was for sexual pleasure. And that was normal. And, and so Paul says, even the Gentiles understand this is wrong. In this particular case, you know, it, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to speak of incest. It wasn't his mom. Obviously, his mom was out of the picture. His dad remarried, and then the guy began a sexual relationship with his dad's new wife. And and it sounds like it was ongoing enough that maybe even dad was out of the picture now, and he moved in with this woman, or he was now um, having relations with this woman, and the church is, is accepting it. It says, look at verse number two, and it says, You are puffed up. Men, puff out your chest. Puffed up. Just kidding. Don't do that. Um, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So listen, this is what's happening in churches around the world today. And, and again, we, you know, I want to be careful. I'm not like a fire and brimstone preacher. Like I, I really believe that, that guilt trips and fire and brimstone don't change anybody's life. I believe that what the Word of God says, that it's the love of Jesus that compels us. It's the love of God that changed my life. And my life wasn't a bunch of junk when I became a Christian. And it wasn't any kind of guilt trip or, or, or judgment. It was God's amazing love that kept coming to me when I was just blowing it and just a bad, bad person and struggling. And, and, and God just kept saying to me in the midst of my sin. And, I, and He would come to me and in the early days of first becoming a Christian. And I would just think, man, God's going to strike me with lightning for my hypocrisy and where I've been and what I've done and how I'm struggling. And God would come and He would say, I love you. And, ah. Oh, Man, that's the hardest thing to hear. You how could you love me? It would hurt so bad to think that, that that he was so worthy and so awesome that he would still love me through all of this. And then and then I would, you know, I'd be in church on Sunday with my hands raised as a new believer and really meaning in my heart and wanting to change and, and then I and then get to Wednesday and Thursday and by Friday I was back in the old spot doing the old stuff and and broken before the Lord and I would I would have a moment of getting alone with God and, and trying to repent and seek God and just feeling like, again, you know, God really needs to punish me. Like, this is hypocrisy at its worst and, and I'm in a season where I know God is just going to kill my dog. I'm going to break my ankle walking up my steps to my apartment, something, and then God and I will be even. And God would show up in all of those moments as a young believer in this just particular season where God was doing something special in my life. And God would show up and unequivocally and very clearly, God would say to me, I love you. Ah, what do you mean? How could you love me? Have you seen where I've been? Do you know what I've done? Of course I know what you've done. Of course I was there with you. I love you anyways. Quit doing that stuff. And, and, and again, that was my experience. It was the love of God that changed my life. And, and again, we preach that. It's the love of God that will change your life. It's the love of God that changes other people's lives. And we understand that. But listen where we make a mistake and I see lots of churches do it. And I've told you guys before, I'm kind of a sermon junkie. You know, like some people's pastime is baseball and other things. And I love me some Dodgers. But, um, but my pastime, my weekly habits are I, I got about 1,400 different um, apps on my phone for different pastors and teachers that I like. And I'll listen to 7, 10, 12 sermons a week just checking people out. And apart from what I'm preparing to teach... You know, and I hear it all. You know, I checked out a new church this week that I'd never checked out. A church in 9, I'm going to say. And just milk. Just nonsense. Just like afraid to really just say what the Word of God says. And again, I understand that it's the love of God that changes people's lives. And maybe the philosophy is that if we only tell people the love of God, then then they'll, they'll, they'll come to Jesus. And they won't be afraid. And You know, and I get it. We want to preach the love of God, but, but you're not doing anybody a disservice and in this particular church, it says that they were puffed up, that they were arrogant about the fact that they knew what was going on with this sexual relationship with this guy and his, and his father's wife, and they were like bragging about it. They were puffed up about it. Hey, we're the grace church. We have a guy that comes to our church. He's sleeping with his dad's wife, and we welcome him. And we, we embrace this stuff. Look, you could come here no matter what's wrong with you, no matter where you are in life, you're welcome here. And you can come. Now listen, we want to have that attitude that everybody's welcome. And and if you come, you, you know, the church is a hospital. We need to have broken people here. If you look around and you don't see any broken people, like this guy and other people in in, in life situations, you guys are doing a bad job. Because you're not bringing them. Like, invite them. Bring them the worst of the worst. Like, that's, that's, that's what we're here for. But again, if, if we bring them here... And we tell them, hey, it's okay what you're doing. God loves you. It's not, it's not, it's not what God's Word says. It's not what's going to change lives. At some point we have to, and it's, it's a tough road for all of us, right? As Christians, as Christ followers, we, we want to be able to love people and tactfully, lovingly tell them that a good, good father doesn't want you doing this behavior because it's, it's forbidden, because it's bad for you. And because God loves you and he wants what's best for you, you you can't live your life that way. And the simple truth that, listen, God's not going to bless your life if you're living in unrepentant sin. Amen. So this church, again, it says in verse two, they were puffed up. They were bragging about their grace and about not dealing with these things. And what does Paul tell them? Paul tells them that rather you should have mourned. Now, number one. When you find a brother in sin, God says that our, our our response should be that we're heartbroken for them. When we see somebody in these sins and, and lives broken, that we're not judging them. We're not mad at them. We're not better than them. Paul says you should have mourned. Your, your response should have been, man, this is wrong and this breaks my heart. And again, that has to be our response. And then it says, um, verse 3, for I indeed as absent in body but present in the spirit have already judged as though I were present with him who has done this deed. So Paul's just saying, look, I'm not even there. And and I've already made judgment that this is wrong. You guys should have been able to make this simple judgment and dealt with this. And then he says in verse four, "In in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse four, Paul says what he's about to do in verse five requires the Holy Spirit and it requires God's um, people and, and really some prayer and not just a light decision. So verse 4 sets up verse 5, but Paul says as you get to verse 5, which is going to be to excommunicate this guy in a term that Paul says, turn him over to Satan. Again, look at verse 4. It says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together, along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. So the the call of God is that the act that's about to take place is not taken easily. And that, that to deliver such a one to Satan. In First Timothy, Paul is dealing with two guys, Hymenius and Alexander, and we see that same language. Paul says, I turned them over to Satan. Now again, that sometimes, right, for, for maybe there's some of you, and I think I maybe probably had this reaction at one point, that man, that's harsh. What do you mean, turn them over to Satan? Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and his resolve to this guy who's struggling is, To turn him over to Satan? But then look what he says. Look at the purpose of it. Verse 5. Deliver such a one as Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's Paul's heart for this guy? What's Paul's? What is it? Salvation, right? Like Paul really loves this guy still. But he says, look, we can't continue to let him be in our midst And tell him what he's doing is okay and not wrong. And because... Now, let me tell you this. There's many of us in this room who are guilty of a lot of the sins that we're going to see in this chapter. But we're different than this guy. Because Paul's going to say, as were such some of you. And the difference is, we've repented of those sins. We don't practice those sins on a daily basis. We don't boast in those sins. We've been broken over those sins. But for this particular guy and his situation... He, he never repented. He never said, oh yeah, you're right. Like this is wrong. And I want to be right before God. You know, when it, somebody comes with that heart, two people can commit the same exact egregious mistake or sin. And one of them is broken like King David. And the other one is chest out and defending his action. You deal with both of those people very differently. Same sin, but different reaction from the person. And this particular guy, he was unrepentant. And so Paul says, we're going to gather together in the Holy Spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, and we're going to pray. And I'm sure they went to this guy and gave him opportunity to get right, and he chose not to get right, that he wanted to stay in this relationship. And then Paul says, okay, with this particular person, we're going to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And what does that mean? That means we're going to remove him from the body that, that is together with the you know, shielding, where the protection is. You know, every one of us, right? Like the, like again, like the 300 example I used last week. You know, I guess I have a fascination with Leonidas and those guys, but they, they have their shields together where it's one wall and it's every man has to protect the guy next to him. And you know, the church is that way. But we're a shield. Paul told us um, in chapter two of this, this book that we're as the church, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit and that there's, there's the body that we protect that and that um so you remove the guy from the church and without that protection he's he's he is turned over to Satan and Satan's going to begin to buffet him and Satan is going to begin to to do things in his life that is going to make him uncomfortable and hopefully do what force him back to God make him repent and want to come home and get it right but Paul's ultimate heart for this individual for you for me is salvation and to get right and sometimes and it happens very rarely you know, very rarely, I don't, I'm trying to think if I have, I, in this church in seven years, I know at Joshua Springs, there was a couple of times, you know, that I had to deal with it and happened to be on the pastoral staff and committee that would have to deal with these things when we did have to pull somebody aside and tell them, you know, we called it the left hand of fellowship. We had to go and we we're at a board meeting and we prayed over these things. It was like they raised their left hand and that's not good. Like, um, but anyways, like, you know, we don't take it lightly, you know. I don't think we've ever had anybody who was like a member here that I had to excommunicate or ask not to come back. I think we've had plenty. I've had several people who showed up and just showed up to to cause trouble, and and we discerned that pretty quickly and asked them not to come back. told them there was a great church down the street. Just go there. Um, Enjoy life. But, um, you know, and it's different too. In in Paul's day, the church in Corinth was, you know, like today, it, it doesn't work as effectively because if we tell somebody, hey, like, you know, you need to go and and get this right. You're welcome to come back if you want to repent. Um, but now they just go down to a street down the church. They go to another church down the street and get involved there. You know, I've heard pastors say that if we excommunicate somebody or we're dealing with something in this vein and we we know where they've gone, we'll call the pastor and just tell them, hey, this is what we dealt with in the situation. And maybe the guy was a predator and he just came to try to pick up girls and was, you know, or something. We had to ask him to leave or. For whatever reason, maybe you had a business venture that happens from time to time. You get people that have some Ponzi scheme or something going on, and they think you folks are, you know, easy prey. So they show up and use Christianese and then start presenting their, their business plan to folks in church. And you know, we've had that happen. And you know, then when we find it out and figure it out, we have to tell them. We have to give them the left hand of fellowship. All right. So then he say, he goes on and he says, um, Hey, real quick, turn with me if you will to Psalm fifty one. Um, We we talked about it already, but I want you to see something here. Again, with this particular um, individual, he was unrepentant. And that's the difference, right? In Psalm 51, it says in the beginning here, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. How many of you guys know that story? Raise your left hand. Just kidding. Um, So the story is, if you're not familiar with it, most of us have been in church, they're familiar with it. Um, David, he... He was at a time where there was peace and his, his, his men were all out fighting. And there was a season of war in Israel. I always think that's so crazy. It seems like when the things spark up and you have to go to war and you just got to go when it happens. But not in David's day. It says there was a, in, in, in those days, I guess maybe in the deep winter and other times, like everybody agreed like we won't fight during those times. In the spring when it's nice and the weather's good, that's when we fight. It was a season of, of uh, springtime or fighting time and David's men were out and David's on his roof. And I've stood there. It's pretty cool. When we go to Israel, you can stand in the place where David stood, and you're overlooking the Kidron Valley. And you can—it makes sense. It just—it brings the story to life to see what David would have saw, and how clearly you could have saw um, Bathsheba if her house was 100, 300, 600 yards away um, along the hill where she would have lived. And so David is there, and Bathsheba is on her roof, and she's bathing. Who's at fault? I don't know. David, I guess he was the king, but. So whether she did it on purpose or not, I don't know. She was trying to entertain David, or maybe that was just her custom. David had not no business being a peeping Tom. He should went to his house. And, but he sees her, and he invites her to the house, and he has biblical relations with her. And she gets pregnant, and, and he brings her husband home from war and says, go into your wife thinking that he'll sleep with her. And, and then when she turns up pregnant, he'll think it's his, and everything will go away. And and Uriah goes and he sleeps on the doorpost of his house. And and David sees he didn't go into her. So he brings Uriah back to the palace the second night. And this time he just has the um, people keep his his wine glass completely full and gets gets Uriah totally drunk. And then Uriah totally drunk. David thinks, okay, now his inhibitions are down. He's drunk. He's going to go into his wife. Sends him home. And totally drunk, Uriah has more morals than David and fortitude. And he sleeps on the porch the second night. And so David, without a solution, this one didn't work, writes a death sentence for Uriah that he should be put in the fiercest battle. And, and when the fighting gets, gets bad, pull all the men around him away so that he'll be killed in battle. He seals it with the king's seal. He hands it to Uriah and he says, deliver this to, to Joab. And so, so he brings his own death sentence back. Sure enough, the battle happens. They bring report to David and they say, man, we, we lost 40 soldiers in this battle. And... um." And the, and the messenger was told, before David says, well, why did you use that strategy and why didn't you do this and that? He says, tell him Uriah the Hittite was also killed and he'll understand. So, so she, has, she gets pregnant and David now seems like a hero in the story. Uriah dies in battle, his wife's pregnant, and David is going to take her in as his own. Except for one problem. God sees his sins and God's not going to let it go. And so Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and he tells him this fascinating story. There was a man in your kingdom who had um, all kinds of animals and and, and riches and wealth and his neighbor had one little ewe lamb that he loved so much that he would sleep in his bed at night. And the the neighbor, the rich neighbor, was going to have a party and his friends were all coming over and rather than go into his many flocks, he went next door and he took that man's one little ewe lamb and he killed it for dinner for his guests. And David was indignant. And he said, the man shall surely die. Because David saw his own sin in the situation. And our sins on other people are always hard to deal with. And so he, you know, and the thing was in Israel, the, 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 the punishment for stealing a lamb wasn't death. So why was David calling for this guy's death? And then, and then the famous line in the Bible, right, where Nathan looks at David and he says, who is this guy that did this? What did what did what did Nathan say to him? He said, You the man now, dog. That's where that, that saying comes from. David Nathan said to him, You're the man. You're the one that did this. Now, in this situation, you know, David's life is it's really hard to understand biblically. You know, I can relate to it so much because I lived part of it for for a, a while, you know, and um, but David had so many sins that made him not really a good person, like not a good Christ follower. Like he he was a murderer. He did all kinds of stuff. He was full of pride in different seasons. He had all of these kind of egregious mistakes and sins in his life, and yet God says of him that he's a man after my own heart. When 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 David died and Solomon took over, Solomon was was struggling in obedience to God, and God comes to Solomon and this is what He says: You have not wholly followed me as your father David did. And I'm like, did God get amnesia? Is he talking about the same David that I just read about? I'm pretty sure he was down in Ziklag killing women and children in a season of his life. But the, the, the fascinating thing about King David and the story that his life tells is that God is interested in your heart. And no excuse for sin. Because the, the principle that we learned through David's life is even though God supernaturally and miraculously would forgive David of his sin, there were still consequences. You go out and you, you, you get a 50, 502, you're drunk driving, driving under the influence, something happens. You hit a car along the way. God will forgive you for that sin. But you're still going to Yale. Or jail, I mean. Yale is that college. You don't get to go to college when you get a DUI. You're still going to pay the fines. You're still going to have the consequences of that sin. Does that mean that God didn't forgive you? No, God will absolutely forgive you. If, like David, you repent. And so let's let's look. Psalm 51, the reason why we're there is because, um, you see the little heading there? It says, this was David's reaction when Nathan said to him, you're the man now, dog. You are this guy. Look at what David says. David looked to God. He spoke to God and he said, have mercy upon me, O God according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me against you, and only you have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight. What do you mean against God and only God have you sinned? You killed Uriah. Other men that were around him in that battle died as a result of your decision. But yet in the big picture, it's against God that we've sinned. And it's with God that we ultimately have to get it right. And so so he says, verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth and inward parts, and the hidden part of you will make me know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones... You have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And then two of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible, 10 and 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, I don't don't know that God necessarily takes his Holy Spirit away from us. Um, I, I don't think it's a matter of removal in your life. Not to say it can't happen, you know, because I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but I do believe you can leave your salvation of a choice that you make. But, but what happens is when, God's, when you feel like God's Holy Spirit has been taken from you, it just means relationally that you're not close to God to hear His voice. That you've allowed sin and things in your life that are clouding. They're, they're putting um, stops and blocks between you and this relationship with God. And, and repenting as David did, what that does is that clears the air. It clears the clouds and the junk and the muck that, that stops you from hearing and knowing the presence and the voice of God in your life. And, and so the heart of repentance in King David is that he, he really cornered the market. And God honors David's heart and because David wasn't fake. You can say a lot of things about David, and I've said a lot of things about David, but I'll tell you one of the things about David. He was absolutely sincere and broken before God, that he broke God's heart and he sinned. And when he sinned, he he was broken and repented. And and what happened every time in David's life? Not only did God forgive him, but God forgot to the point where he could say, "That's that's a man after my own heart. That, that, that's, that's a guy who walked holy with the Lord. That's a guy who followed me and and followed all of my commandments. Because he chose to forget David's sins. Amen? All right. So, um, so that's an example, again, of repentant and unrepentant. We're going to touch that in the end here. We got a few more minutes and we'll be wrapping up. I was going to do two chapters today. I was so proud of myself. Last week we got done like ten minutes early, five minutes early. First time, like, probably in my life, but... Uh, I was like, I'm going to do it two weeks in a row. I'm going to do two chapters today and finish early. Didn't happen. All right. Um, where are we at? Verse 5, 6, 6. Your thing is not good. Okay, you already told them that. You know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What is leaven in the Bible? Leaven is a type of what? Okay, leaven is a type of? It's not yeast. I mean, it is yeast. That's what it is. But in the Bible, it's a type of? No, you said it the first time. It's a type of sin. Everybody say sin. 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 One more time. Sin. Sin. I thought that would be really clear. It wasn't as clear as I thought it would be. Leaven in the Bible is a type of sin. When we take communion on Sunday mornings, what kind of bread do we use? Unleavened. Unleavened. Why do we use unleavened bread in Passover? Why do Jews to this day um, use unleavened bread in Passover? I don't know if you guys are familiar, but for, for a Jew anywhere in the world today that celebrates Passover, and all of them do... Um, I shouldn't say all of them, but, you know, most of them do. Um, It's it's really, really actually super fascinating and fun to be a part of a real Passover celebration with with Jewish family or have somebody recreate that. But one of the things they do annually that God prescribed was that before Passover, you had to purge the house of all leaven, because leaven is a type of sin in the Bible. And when, when we take it, when Jesus took the bread with the disciples... It would have been unleavened bread because leaven is a type of sin. And the bread represents what? In, in communion. It represents the body of Jesus. And, then, and, and Jesus was without sin or leaven. And so that's why we use unleavened bread. Um, never mind. I won't, I won't do it. I won't talk about people who use white bread when they take communion with leaven in it. I'll leave it alone. But it does bother me. So, so it's without leaven, and the Jews will tab part of the festival, and they hide a little bit of leaven in the house somewhere, and then it's like Easter, It's kind of like their Easter egg hunt for the kids, you know, like the kids all got to go through the house and try to find it, and, and, and the ultimate part of the ceremony is that you purge the entire house of leaven. And so Paul here is saying, um, because leaven is also yeast, and a, very, a little bit of yeast, you know, like there was one company, a bread company, and the original batch started like in 1939, and... In 1970, it was still a piece of that original batch that had just been carried from loaf to loaf to loaf of the yeast that will, will rise. And Paul says a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And so you, you can't, the idea is that you can't, you can't regulate sin in your life. You can't compartmentalize sin in your life. You can't say, well, I just, you know, a little, little bit of sin here and a little bit of sin here. And, I'll, you know, I just, I won't deal with it, but I won't let it grow. And, and, and the, the Word of God says you just can't do that. Jesus said, kind of used radical terms. He said, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to cut it off, you know. But these were radical terms to illustrate that you can't regulate sin in your life. You have to eradicate it. You have to cut it out. It's a cancer. It'll grow. That's the idea of leaven and and sin in our lives is that it's a cancer that will grow and continue to grow. And so Paul says, don't you know that a little sin, a little leaven, a little yeast will leaven the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Maybe that'd be a good name for a church. I know a bunch of churches, new life, fresh life, new harvest. How about new lump? You'll be a new lump. Since it, it's biblical, it's, a, it's, it's definitely got a good, good premise behind it. Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So again, he ties it together that, that there's no leaven in, in Christ. There's no sin in him, that we need to deal with the sin. And the dangers of letting this guy's sin go unrepentant in our church will leaven the whole lump. You know, what's going to happen, right? Again, in, in Corinthian church, if we just unpack what Paul's saying here... Um, the guy comes in, you know, everybody's celebrating it. Hey, we're the Grace Church. What do you think the other people in church are going to start to do? They're going to, they're going to live in sinful lives and say, oh, it's okay in our church. You know, and whatever, whatever we, we allow and, and, and those kinds of things, it's, going, it's definitely going to spread and grow, and other people are going to want to do the same thing. And then he says, therefore, in verse number 8, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, so again, just a simple call. Malachi, last week I shared with you guys um, what is required of the Lord, um, that you do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And so here he says to get rid of of it in sincerity and in truth. And then in verse 9 he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. What epistle did he write to the Corinthians with? He says, I wrote to you in my epistle. A lot of people believe that Paul would have written an earlier letter to the Corinthians that had some instruction in it that for whatever reason wasn't canonized. That's probably true. We get First and Second Corinthians, which probably are Second and Third Corinthians. And that first letter that Paul writes here in verse number 9, um, we don't have it. So we don't have it on purpose. It's not, we're not supposed to have it. The Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake. It just wasn't included in the Word. And then he says in verse 10, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetousness, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You'd have to go to Mars to stay away from people who are sexually immoral. Paul says stay away from people who are sexually immoral. But I don't mean that you don't have people you work with, and in your family, and that you completely isolate your your life from anybody who's living in any kind of sin. That's, that's not the point. right? We've talked about before that as believers, you know, in order to reach the lost, we have to be among the lost we have to have some kind of interaction with the lost we got to love lost people we got to we got to allow lost people certain space in our lives but what the bible forbids is us counseling with those people with us being close to those people with us you know confiding in them being best friends with them that's a it's a different Um, relationship with people who are not Christian of the Lord and we're to love them and we're to spend time with them because if we don't do that, how are we ever going to reach them? How are we ever going to be able to to share the love of Jesus with them? But you just have to be very careful in those relationships. Again, you know, I, I think with the ladies, you know, I think of people, you know, you grew up with a girlfriend. And she was your your bestie your whole life and and you became a Christian at some point in life and Lydia has one of these you know and you know one of her best friends in life that she's been friends with since the fourth grade and and Lydia be, you know is following Jesus and her friend is not and and we've stayed close with with this particular girl and her family she was in our wedding and and we love her but you know Lydia is not calling her when he, her and I are fighting for advice she's not a Christian she's not confiding in her when when things when she needs. You know, the, and you got to be careful. If your bestie is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that's not who you you can be comp, comp, be open with and look for advice in. And you know, you can keep those relationships for what purpose? For the purpose of sharing the gospel, for the purpose of being a, an example of Jesus. And so Paul says, when I told you to avoid sexually immoral people, which I did, I I didn't mean the everybody you know that that is in that category. Otherwise, he says you'd have to leave the world to do that. You'd have to go to the moon, or you'd have to join up with, what's his bucket, and go to Mars. What's his name? Elon, Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon's never going to get to Mars. And then we go, and then it goes on, it says, um, in verse number 11, But I now have written to you, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So now in the issue of a believer in Jesus, he does want us, them, to stay um, out of this relationship. Again, this guy's a professing believer in Jesus. He's living in hypocrisy. He's, he's living in unrepentant sin. And, 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 and again, Paul's saying here, for that particular situation, when someone's professing a uh, faith in Jesus and, and they're living a life of immorality, then you, know, you shouldn't be hanging out with them. You shouldn't, he says goes on and say you shouldn't even have dinner with them. And then he goes on, and he says, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those who are also outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? And so Paul's making a distinction here that, again, listen, as believers, we are not to judge people. We are to love people, and God is to judge them. I know some of you, and myself at times, feel like, God, let me judge them, and you love them. And God says, no, that's not the way it works. You love them. And I'll judge them, and God, God is the judge. So we love people. We're not. We're not. Nobody's judge. Okay. And the world wants to beat up the church over this one verse that they know, "Thou shalt not judge, lest you be judged." They don't know it in context. They don't understand what it means. You know, they love to tattoo it on themselves. Only God can judge me. That's right, and that should scare you, because God is going to judge you one day. But everybody and their mom likes to put that tattoo on their own. Only God can judge me. But but you know we we don't. We don't judge people. God judges them. We love them. Okay? We, use, we use discretion. We use wisdom. But Paul says he makes a distinction that we, we do deal with those in love that, that are a part of the body of Christ. Because again, the body of Christ, can a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. And so Paul's making a distinction. You know, it's like, how many of you guys walk down the street, knock on your neighbor's door, and ask the kids to come outside so you can spank them? Because you're going to discipline them. Hey, I saw your kids doing some stuff today. Bring them outside. Got the belt out, you know you 're like i 'm dealing with this right now we don 't we don 't go down the street and discipline the neighbor 's kids, but we discipline our own kids, we discipline our own family we deal with the 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 the, the dynamics of our own family, and so again we don 't we don 't have the place or the right to judge the world they 're of the world we 're going to love them and see them come to jesus but within the within the body, there comes a season for discipline you know some churches still practice, a, you know, and I, we never did. My pastors never did, so I never adopted it. And I know some good pastors who who biblically follow up. They do church discipline. So like if you have or like have some kind of sin or public sin, they bring you up in front of the whole church and you have to confess your sin. And you, you guys want to try that? I'm just kidding. Um, you have to confess your sin and repent and, and they make it all public, you know, and I don't know. just you You could probably make a case for it in the Bible, but I don't know. Kind of be tough. So, and it goes on, it says, um, verse 13, But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourself the evil, evil person. So, um, then chapter 6. Give me two minutes. Let's, let's cover a couple verses. Because I said I was going to get into 6. Um, it says, Dare any of you, having matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will... Be judged by you, and you unworthy to judge the smallest matter. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So one of the topics in in Corinthian church that was happening is that that, that church member was going to court against church member. They were suing each other in the public courts, and Paul says that you know, like in King David, in the story that I told you, um, it, it's in Second Samuel chapter twelve where where this this thing unfolds that we just read where David responds, Psalm 51. Well, what happened was when Nathan came, David said, I have repented. And, and Nathan says to David, you have repented and God has forgiven you, but there's consequences that you're still going to pay. The child that, that Bathsheba, your child that Bathsheba is born with, will die. And you have given the enemies of God the occasion to blaspheme. What happens when a Christian publicly falls what do the enemies of God do? They blaspheme Christ. And so, so our sins have consequences and they they, they 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 can give the enemies of God the occasion to blaspheme. So Paul is saying, why are we taking and airing dirty laundry in the church and we're going to court now? In Corinthians, again, they were all about Judge Judy and everything was this public display and in the court cases it was like, you know, it was on TV and it was like, they, they said they would have 150 jurors in a juror to decide one case because so many people were into it and it was like the social thing to do in courts and public courts. And so Paul says, you know, you're not as Christians. Listen, look across the aisle. You can't sue these people. That's not, God doesn't want Christians suing Christians. I had somebody who was familiar with this verse ask me recently, as, as a Christian, am I not allowed to sue? And and their particular case, as we walked through it, was a custody case and it was suing the state. And um, and I said, no, that the Bible doesn't, prohibit that or, provi- or pro- the, the Bible doesn't prohibit that. You, you can. What the Bible prohibits, forbids, is the word I'm looking for. What the Bible forbids is Christians suing Christians. And what Paul says is that you have enough people in your church that you can arbitrate, that you can have good Christian people who love each other, who love God, hear the case and make a decision. You know, don't you have And he says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? Kind of a strange verse there. What does that mean? We're going to judge angels. I, and I don't know, I, I guess the prevailing idea here is that we're not going to judge angels, but we're going to judge fallen angels. So if you like broke your arm one time riding your bike, it's not like you're going to get to find your guardian angel in heaven and go, where were you that day? I'm judging you. You let me break my arm and you didn't stop me you know, or you didn't help me. I don't think that's the idea here. I think the idea is that um, the fallen angels are going to say to God, maybe one day we didn't have a choice, Satan deceived us, Satan did this and Satan did that and, and that's why we did what we did you know you should have mercy on us and we'll be able to say to the fallen angels that Satan did the same exact thing to us and we still believed and we believed in a God that we never saw and you saw him and still didn't follow him you, you were in his very presence and, and still rebelled and fell and we love and serve a God that we've never seen and, and so um, we'll judge these angels and so again Paul's making this case um about Christians suing Christians. It is forbidden in the Bible. And then he says um, in verse 4, If you... three, Do you not know we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments co- concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? No, you don't do that. I say this to your shame. It is so that you, there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between brethren. So he's he's bagging on them a little bit here. He's using a little bit of satire like are are you suing each other in the public courts because you don't have one person in your congregation that's smart enough or wise enough to handle these things? That's why you're going out and and, and airing dirty laundry in the in the of the church in the in the city. And on judge Judy. And then in verse 6 it says but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. And that's what Paul that's what Paul Forbids. Okay, again, you go to the garage and you know they they, they you, you get your car back for an oil change and you drive it two miles down the street and your engine falls on the ground and it was perfectly fine before you got there. Maybe you have a case that you sue the, the garage or they're gonna have to replace your engine or something. You know that's a different story, right? But brother against brother forbidden. Now therefore it is ready, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? And why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? Oh, I love this concept. Check it out. I know it's getting late. Your butts are getting sore. Pastor Chuck used to say that only your mind could only absorb what your behind could endure. So I get it, you know, your behind can only endure so much. Um, But here, listen, he says, the idea, again, for us as Christians is, Paul says, why before you like you want to win this court case listen you know what want to as christians being right it's not that important winning like you know why, why marriage is why we fight all the time because somewhere something inside of us all says that we have to be right like who cares you you can be right and all alone cuz nobody wants to be around you but you're right you were right in the argument. You were right every time. And you're still all alone because nobody can stand you. And, and winning and being right all the time, it's overrated. And Paul says, even in this situation, he says, before you like have to be right and win, he says, what about the idea of you were wronged, you're in the wrong, they were wrong, you're in the right, and you let it go anyways. Why, why not? How many of you just take the idea? You've been cheated. So what? Let it go. I've been cheated, it's not worth it, I'm not going to take this guy to court over it, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to blaspheme and drag the name of Jesus through the mud in order to win this fight, that I'll just take the loss. And that is an option. And again, and that's for you to weigh that option in every circumstance. And there's a time when you need to fight. There's a time when you need to win and take it to, to whatever. But there's also a time where you can just, hey, I'm just going to let this one go. Yeah, they're wrong, They're wrong. I'm right. And I'm going I'm gonna, gonna to win because I'm going to lose. Amen? Nobody? You guys are all too prideful for that. Next week's sermon, come back. It's going to be on pride. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Um, we're going to wrap up. Let's have the worship team come on up. Close us in a song. Give me two more verses as the worship team comes up. Let's try to finish uh, maybe 11. And it says, verse number 8, Do you or no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat? And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know what you won't find in in tons of churches in America? A church that will read that verse. But you know what's fascinating about this particular section? It's repeated seven times in your New Testament. Let me give you another one. Same exact idea. And there's, there's five more besides this one. This one's in Galatians, where Paul says the same exact thing. 5.19, Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, evils, murders, drunkenness, revilers, and the like, which I told you beforehand, just as I also tell you in the past, that those who practice, and again, the, the idea is practicing such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. One I read in Corinthians. One I read in Galatians. Go find the other five today because it's five more times repeated in the New Testament. With this term, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're practicing unrepentant a, a sin that's in this list, will you inherit the kingdom of God? I gotta we gotta we gotta pr- tell that people. We gotta tell the truth. In love, say hey, get right with God. King David was a guy that, that had lots of sins, and God he repented, and God forgave him. You have sin that God's got to deal with, but. The Bible says seven times that if you practice, now the idea is practicing. I'm guilty of 90% of these sins in my life, and I'm going to heaven. But the difference is that I don't continually practice these sins on a daily basis. They were in my past, and at some point God got a hold of my heart, and I repented, and God forgave me, and now I'm going to heaven. But when the Bible says in these words, like I don't know how you want to interpret this, or how you just have to avoid it if you, if you don't want to. Be controversial or deal with these topics, but and it says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Now I could say this in Chinese, so I don't offend you, but I'm going to say it in English. It means you're going to hell. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so again, if these these are part of our lives, get them right, repent them. They're they're easy to fix. They're 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 available for forgiveness. But we just can't, you know, we can't pretend to practice them and continue in practicing them unrepentant, like our guy in chapter five and and his difference. Now it says, look, um, verse eleven. We're going to wrap up here. And such were past tense some of you. So so that's true in this room, right? As were some of you. But the difference is we're in a different category because. We're not continuing unrepentant to live in these sins. And, 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 and he says, but you were washed. Somebody say amen. amen. You were sanctified. Amen. You were justified. Amen. amen. What does justified mean? That's a good one. Just as if I'd never done it, right? Just as if I'd never done it. God says he's going to take your sins and he's going to throw them into the sea of forgetfulness. That's pretty deep. Deeper than the Maranatha Trench. Not the Maranatha. Mariana. (laughs) What? Mariana. He says he's going to put them as far as the east is from the west. If you took out in your car today and you headed west, when would you hit the east? Never Never. If you took out of here today and you went north, when would you hit the south pole? About halfway around, you'd start going south. North south north south east west never touches. He said he's going to put your sins as far as the east is from the west. That you're justified, just as if you'd never done it. And when he gets to the New Testament, you know, thing's fascinating about Hebrews chapter 11 in the in the Faith Hall of Fame where he mentions all of the stories of the Old Testament. Every one of the stories in the Old Testament, save like Daniel, maybe, um, no mention of sin. Of only Daniel has no mention of sin in his life, but the rest egregious sins in their lives, and then God mentions them all. He brings them all up in Hebrews chapter 11, and He doesn't even mention their sins. He forgot them. He says of King David, generations later, to Solomon, Solomon, you didn't walk in all of my ways as your father David did. That was was his opinion of David. Because he had thrown his sins into the sea of forgetfulness, as were some of you justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so again, it's in the name of the Lord Jesus. So let's stand together. If uh, you're in here today and your heart and your life is not right with the Lord Jesus, it's the love of God that will change your life. It's not fear of these sins. I tell you unequivocally, to not inherit the kingdom of God means that you go to hell. Because it's just eternal separation from God. It's not that God sends you there. It's a choice that you make. It's a choice that you didn't want to be with God now, and He's not going to force you to be with Him for all of eternity. He's going to allow the separation that you've requested, and that's what hell is. But God offers for you to get right, to to give your heart and life to Him, to repent of your sins, to ask Him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. And it's the love of Jesus. You know, you're not going to be... We, we can't. We can't intellectually... Be so afraid of hell that that motivates us to walk with God every day and to stop sinning and try to be, have, be relational as Christ followers. It just doesn't work. It's the love of God. It's understanding and receiving and knowing the power of God's love and what it does for your life that will change your life. But respond to that love and just know that God loves you as a child. He wants what's best for you. And yeah, how many of you guys as fathers wouldn't have some rules and some discipline in your house? The Bible says if you don't discipline your sons, you hate them. And we know that to be true. You know a son's going to grow up with a father who won't discipline him and deal with his mistakes in a loving way? You're ruining that kid. God's not going to ruin you. God loves you. God wants to see you grow and flourish and have joy in Jesus. And He offers for you eternal salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. If you want to ask Jesus in your heart or get your heart right with Jesus, I want you just to pray with me. And as always, I ask the whole church family just to pray this prayer out loud together. Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Give me a heart of repentance like King David to clear the air, to have nothing between me and you relationally. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. And I ask Him to come into my heart And I give him all of my heart, all of my life. I ask you, God, to fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. We love you guys. Hey, we got one song. Let's worship the Lord together. If God did something in your life during this song, then I mean, during this this message today, we just want you to take these last three minutes and, and praise God, worship the Lord through the music. We have um, leaders and pastors that are up front to pray for you. If anybody would like individual prayer during this time, we invite you guys to come up and uh, receive prayer. And uh, God bless you guys. We love you guys. We'll see you. And I'll be out in the lobby as you're leaving if you got any questions or want to highlight any of my heresies. And there's a complaint department located in Ogden. I'll give you directions to it. Love you guys. We'll see you guys. Have a great week.